What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy. And we are here to talk about week seven of college baseball. Yes, we've reached uh, effectively the midpoint of the college season. A lot of these teams are sitting right around 28 games. Uh, so we were, we're right there in the center of the season. And it was an exciting weekend around the country. It had a lot of rivalry action. You had uh, Tennessee taking on Vanderbilt and coming away with the sweep to remain number one in the top 25. There was the Red River rivalry. There was Florida and Georgia. There was Southern Miss and Louisiana Tech. There, there was all kinds of, of rivalry stuff around the country. So plenty to dive into with that. And also some uh, big moves in the Pac-12, kind of shaking that race up a little bit. So we're going we're gonna to get into all of that here on today's edition of the Baseball America top 20 or top 25 podcast the baseball america college podcast top 25 and more joe we're 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 here to we're here to talk all things college baseball today i mean i feel like this could be described as a top 25 podcast we do it on mondays the top 25 gets released on mondays i think um you know i think that's a reasonable thing to uh to call it does that how does that go for cover is that does that work uh, that's that's better than whatever i was doing so <laughs> yeah, i just think it's a it's a reasonable it's not the official name but it's a reasonable thing a reasonable way to describe this podcast anyway there is a new top 25 if you want to check that out over at baseballamerica.com uh like i mentioned tennessee remains number one they've won 19 straight that's a program record they're nine and zero in the sec uh so tennessee rolling right along a few new teams under the top 25. Uh, Georgia and UCLA are back after brief absences. Southern Miss and Auburn make their season debuts. Uh, so interesting things happen with the top 25. You can check out the uh, the full thing again over there at baseballamerica.com. Joe, I guess let's just start right at the top of the top 25, however, with, uh, with that Tennessee and Vanderbilt series. Uh, this was, is a big rivalry. Uh, and you got the sense that 
I mean, you didn't even have to get the sense. Like you, you just turned this game on and it was very instantly clear how big of a deal this was. Hawkins Field was sold out. We talked about the ticket prices a little bit on the, the Thursday preview edition. I have since learned that you could get into the final four uh, cheaper than it was to, to get into this series uh, in Nashville this weekend. Now, the thing about that is the final four is played in a football stadium and Hawkins Field is on the small end for an SEC venue. Uh, but still, <laughs> the ticket prices were, were pretty pretty crazy and excitement was was through the roof for both of these fan bases, I think. And ultimately, Tennessee comes away with not only a series win in Nashville, but a sweep, uh, a very significant sweep at that, uh, you know, just in terms of rivalry and, and SEC race stuff. Tennessee now has won 19 straight. They've opened up a, a, a huge lead in the SEC East and, and the SEC overall. Uh, they moved to number one in RPI. Everything's coming up balls uh, right now. And uh, it was it was just another big, big weekend for Tennessee. The series really had it all. It was, you know, you have the Jordan Beck uh, home run that wasn't in the opening game, really got things started on a strange foot in this series. You had, uh, in a related note, Tony Vitello in postgame referring to Jordan Beck as Mike Honcho. No, no, that wasn't postgame. That was mid-game. That was on the oh, broadcast. Yeah, in, that was right, on the right, ESPN2 broadcast, broadcast. Like that yeah. was that was on national TV. It wasn't it wasn't even in postgame. So I, I guess let's let's start there and then we can work into the series as an overall. So if you if you didn't see on Friday night in the first inning, Jordan Beck hits a home run to right field. Uh after he hits the home run the umpires check his bat and they find that the sticker that indicates it passed bat testing is missing. It has a sticker from a Tuesday game, but it doesn't have the sticker for the Vanderbilt series. So when that happens, and and we've seen this happen elsewhere in in college baseball this season, uh, the players ruled out. Uh, So they wipe the the home run off the board, rule him out. And, uh, you know, that really could have gone one of two ways for Tennessee that that this happens in the first inning in the top of the first inning and you're wiping run, a run off the scoreboard. And in fact, it ended the inning. Uh, I mean, that really could have been kind of a, you know, a moment where things get away from you mentally, emotionally. And it didn't happen. Tennessee, if anything, seemed to be galvanized by it. Um you know, they they go on to, to score some runs later in the game, and Gilbert has a big hit. Uh, in, as a part of that rally, um, Tony Vitello's joking in the dugout and his uh, mid-game interview about it uh, says that, uh, you know, he, he doesn't even know who this guy is. Like, he's a 35-year-old who forged his transcripts. He's just a good good guy, so they, they, they run him out there. His name's Mike Honcho, which is a Ricky Bobby reference. Apparently, I didn't catch that in the in the moment, but I, I've since learned that that's a Ricky Bobby reference. Uh, and Tennessee goes on to win the game, and all of that, you know, is playing out in the backdrop of the fact that this is a fierce in-state rivalry. Yeah, I mean, that. Uh, I mean, I, I was by bringing all this up, I was more angling for like the more important matter at hand, which is that no matter what you think about Will Ferrell as a filmmaker, as a writer, as a comedian. <laughs> The guy has this special, and and by the way, like I think on the Will Ferrell, because we've had like Will Ferrell as like ubiquitous comedy hitmaker, you know. Then there was like the backlash to Will Ferrell because people thought his his shtick, if you will, if you want to call it a shtick, was a little bit 
overwrought. And then now it feels like sentiment has swung back the other direction a little bit more on the positive side for Will Ferrell, but it's, you know, it's been a little bit of a, a ride for him. Um, and I tend to, to think his movies are just, are, are for the most part, pretty funny and, and, you know, well done. But anyway, regardless, the point being, it is unbelievable the staying power from a quotability standpoint that his movies have, because you're right. I mean, in Ricky Bobby, that's a movie that has got to be 15 years old now, Easy. but I still hear references to it all the time. I think I saw it when I was in college and, but you go back to the movie old school. Like I still hear people say you're my boy blue. And that's a movie that's like 20 years old. At least and that's like his first movie. Like yeah. That was his first big, big, big hit. Yeah. And then you've got and an anchor you know, man, of course. Sure. Of course. And there's yeah, any number of things, glass case of emotion, you know, things like that um, from anchorman. And then you've milk got was a bad uh, choice. Milk was a bad choice. Correct. Um, uh, you with stepbrothers, which is a more recent movie. Like, and I feel like stepbrothers right now is on, because you, know, you, you have the, the quotability. You also have the visual memes of like the portrait picture, the brothers take that gets kind which of run happens out there every year, like multiple college teams every year on picture day run out of stepbrothers like knockoff for uh, sure and, and it, like it, it, it's it's incredible you're right i mean these movies are not that new uh and and yet if you if you spend any amount of time like around college media um you know you're gonna you're gonna see this stuff yeah they're just so sticky so say, say what you will about will ferrell but the uh, like clearly there's a formula that he has found for for being extremely quotable in his films and that's that's certainly not nothing so um this was another another example but i mean what what else is there to say i mean it's our jobs to say more about tennessee so we will we will dutifully try here but it's like what else do you say right i mean this was again okay i I guess it's kind of interesting that okay like they didn't have a 15 run outburst in any of these games and they they, the pitching was good enough to to manage that okay i guess that's kind of interesting but it's just more dominance. I mean, I, I, I was at my own games, but I, I saw a little bit of this after getting back to the hotel on, on Friday night. And I, um, you know, checked in a couple of other times and it just never felt in the little snippets that I saw, it just never felt like Vanderbilt was really even in this series. Um, and if you look at the offensive stats, they really weren't right. 11 hits in three games. Um, you know, and in the game, they scored two runs. It was a couple of solo home runs, you know, like, so there just wasn't a lot of offensive production there for Vanderbilt. And so it, it, it felt like they were never felt like Tennessee in some ways, even though the score lines aren't blowouts by a technical definition, it really just felt like Tennessee controlled this series from minute one until the very end. To me, the, the pitching is, is the interesting thing is the standout thing here because Tennessee has gotten a ton of play for the home run totals for having, you know, the best offense in the nation in terms of like, they, they led the, the nation in scoring coming into this. And uh, obviously they lead the nation in home runs and all of that's very deserved. Like the numbers are very loud and you saw what happened to Ole Miss last weekend. Um, so the hitting early had been kind of the story, but this weekend, uh, you know, Vanderbilt has a really good pitching staff and they pitched, pretty darn well all weekend uh you know obviously there are things they could have done better here and there they gave up more runs than than they would like but you know they held Tennessee down as well as any better than anyone has all season like significantly better than anyone has all season but it didn't even matter because Tennessee outpitched them and you know it started with Drew Burns on Friday throwing pretty well, and then the bullpen throwing really well behind him. 
And then Chase Dollander threw eight innings uh, on Saturday and was really good. And then they got an even better start from Drew Beam on Sunday as he uh, faced one batter over the minimum. You know, like <laughs> Drew Beam goes out and throws a two-hit shutout uh, on Sunday as, as a freshman in his third ever SEC start. It, it, it's remarkable. And, like, we've spent a lot of time talking about Chase Burns and how good he is as a freshman. And, look, he's pitching on Friday nights. It's a different kind of deal. Uh, but Drew Beam cannot possibly be overlooked. And I don't think anyone really was, but certainly after this weekend, can't overlook him. Tennessee needs just four and two-thirds innings from their bullpen all weekend and those relievers went out and held Vanderbilt to one hit one walk and no runs in those four and two thirds innings like the Tennessee didn't need its bullpen to do much but what Tennessee did get from its bullpen was suffocation and you know so if if Tennessee is going to pitch at that level and look Vanderbilt is fighting it offensively in some ways and but like this weekend to me was all about the the balls pitching yeah, it's, it's a really interesting collection of guys, too. I mean, Chase Burns was highly touted coming into this year. Like he now pitching on Fridays as a freshman is a whole different deal. You're right. But, you know, he was the guy that, you know, if you if you I think you had told either of us that he was doing something like this, we would have you know been like we would have been impressed for a freshman, but also wouldn't have probably been all that surprised. Right. But then behind him, you've got, you know, Chase Dollander, a transfer from Georgia Southern, whose numbers last year at Georgia Southern were pretty good. You know, it was ERA with just over four and he had a bunch of strikeouts, but he really wasn't like a workhorse. He wasn't going deep into games for Georgia Southern and his stuff was obviously good, but he, he hadn't put it all together. So there, there was a very real scenario where he was kind of just that for Tennessee. Right. Um, and then Drew Beam was a freshman who was relatively overlooked, um, obviously talented, but I don't think anybody well, so really part of that's because that Drew be Beam was, like Drew Beam was hurt. And like, he just didn't play much the last two years of his high school career. And Tennessee felt like he was going to take off at some point, but they definitely didn't think it was going to happen this quick. But as Tony Vitello said yesterday, uh, and you, know, you hear this sometimes, like we'll say this about players. We'll say this about pro players, um, you know, as they work their way through the minors with really talented players, they kind of set their own schedule. Like you can think, you know, what their schedule is, or, or you can push them on to, to be on a certain schedule, but sometimes they just force the issue. And that's what Drew Beam has done. He's accelerated the whole deal so that he is now ready to, to be this, uh, this sec starter as a freshman. Yeah. It's just him being what he's been has, has really elevated this pitching staff. Right. I mean, we've talked before about the idea that the number of teams that have a Sunday starter, they can really bank on is smaller than, than most people would think it is. And Tennessee's in just a great position right now where it's not just that they have a guy they can bank on. They have a guy who can go out and throw a shutout against Vanderbilt on Sundays. You know, um, that's certainly, certainly next level uh, for Tennessee. Um, you know, and, and at this point they, they are the team, right? I mean, we, we, we thought this going into at this time last week, but man, you talk about really just, um, backing up a performance you know Tennessee is has backed up what they did so what they've done to this point of the season with just a, such an impressive performance absolutely I don't know who if anyone still had questions about Tennessee following Ole Miss but if they did I cannot possibly imagine what you would want Tennessee to prove to you now uh they've they've absolutely you know they are they're at the midpoint of their season they've played 28 games and you couldn't ask for anything more to this point 
the flip side, Joe, is Vanderbilt. Uh, Vanderbilt was just swept at home by their in-state rival for the first time since 2009. They were swept at home by any team for the first time since 2012. They've now lost back-to-back SEC series uh, for the first time since 2018. They've lost five of their last six, period. Uh, Obviously, all of that, none of that is good. None, none of what I just just said is good. Vanderbilt to me though is uh, you know they they're twenty and seven. They're sitting at four and five in the SEC. They are an enigma to me because you look at this team and you see a pretty good pitching staff. I, I again like Tennessee's offense is what it is. You're only going to be able to do so much against them, but uh, you know they did a pretty good job against them this this week. Their offense has some good pieces to it, but it just was was really shut down this weekend. They, they're Vanderbilt to, to this point, its best series win is sweeping Missouri, which looks a little better today than it did a week ago uh, with Missouri coming off of a series win against South Carolina. But I Vanderbilt has played four quality opponents, let's say. They, they played Oklahoma State on opening weekend. They played Missouri. They played South Carolina. They played Tennessee. The other opponents are Wagner, Army, and uh, Hawaii on, on the weekends anyway. Th- those are their weekend opponents. Let's set aside Wagner, Hawaii, and Army because they uh, are combined 22 and 53, and none of them are in the top 50 in RPI. Vanderbilt's won – what is it? They, they've won – They've won the series against Missouri. They won one game at South Carolina. They won one game against Oklahoma State. They, they have three series losses in that. That's just—it's very confounding. That's not—that's not the Vanderbilt we've come to expect. It's not the Vanderbilt we expected this season, and it's kind of hard to pinpoint what exactly has gone wrong. The offense is not as dynamic as we expected. Uh, it's not as deep as we expected. Uh, the pitching staff has is dealing with some injuries right now but it's it doesn't seem like they're far off but they they also just keep taking losses anytime they play a quality opponent yeah it just feels like a situation where everything has been 20 percent less good than we thought it was going to be right and and sometimes that can add up to what you're seeing here of course compounded by the fact they're playing the number one team in the country and um you know, they, they, the South Carolina series maybe was a little bit of an aberration, but you, this is, this, these are the kind of things that can happen when, when things just aren't quite as sharp as, as you thought they were going to be. I mean, the lineup struggling to the extent they did was, is a surprise in general. And, and they really did struggle. I mean, just to put a finer point on it, you know, shut out on two hits on Sunday. On Saturday, they get two runs, like I referred to earlier, two solo home runs in the seventh inning when the game was, you know, had more or less been started to be salted away but they only had three hits total in that game in the opener. They get six hits. They scored two runs, but those runs came on a ground out and an infield single. Um, just a really tough weekend offensively. And I would have been surprised in general, obviously, but also surprised at a team being able to do that to Vanderbilt because it is an offense that is kind of set up to do things a lot of different ways, right? I mean, you can shut down an offense that is waiting around for a three run home run, you can also kind of shut down an offense that has to string together a bunch of singles, right? But this is a team that can do it all from 
Bradfield being a catalyst on the bases to power from Dominic Keegan and Spencer Jones, like Javi Vaz is a guy who can do some things on the bases and is a good athlete. Um, so they've got some interesting pieces there that should allow this offense to be as a college football coach would say multiple enough to where you're not really banking on any one thing being what they hang their hat on. And yet um, that's kind of where we are. And then you look at the pitching staff and well, you know, Patrick, to, 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 to get to the offense here for a second, the, the yeah, thing sure. that Tennessee didn't do this weekend is they just didn't walk. They didn't give free bases away. They walked three batters all weekend. That in itself is remarkable. The Tennessee issued three walks in 27 innings. Uh, and I think Tennessee only made one error on the weekend. So what Tennessee did was they pounded the strike zone. They didn't make errors and they forced Vanderbilt to beat their arms and Vanderbilt just couldn't do it. And now why that is, I mean, like we, we can, you know, try and suss that out, but basically, I mean, you're saying that Vanderbilt should be multiple and they should be, but they're also right now, maybe a little too dependent on just a, a few players. And if those guys don't go, uh, the whole thing kind of falls flat. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's uh, on the pitching side for Tennessee. I mean, that's the Frank Anderson effect, right? I mean, you look back at, I remember those when he was an assistant at the University of Houston back in, I don't know, 2014, 15, 16, I think. You look at some of those pitching staffs that were fronted by guys like Andrew Landrip and like no, no shots at Andrew Landrip, very good college pitcher, but like those were pitching staffs of guys who were not future big leaguers. Although I'm sure there are a couple guys you can point to that either did make the big leagues or are on that path. But point being, it's not a staff nearly as talented as these Tennessee staffs. And yet those Houston teams, I mean, there were several years where they were like, you know, in the elite of the elite in terms of team ERA and strikeout to walk ratio and, and all of that kind of stuff. So that's, that feels like the specific Frank Anderson stamp on this, uh, on this program right now. I was going to say on the, on the Vanderbilt side, pitching wise that, um, you know, while Patrick Riley has come on a little bit now that he's been pushing the rotation and has, has done some nice things. It, it just kind of feels like this is where the difference is that they, they just don't have rotation anchors. And I use the word anchor in a good way. there. rotation anchors that they've had in, in past years, and they're just not able to bank on quite as much on the mound. And the injuries are part of that because everyone slides around into a different seat. Right. Um, but this is where I talk about it being 20% less good than, than maybe we expected is, um, we thought maybe someone in this group was going to really step up and be a dominant piece. And there, there are guys who have done nice things. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to say things are in a bad spot on the mound, but it, it's just that we're, it feels like we're still kind of waiting to figure out who the guy is on this Vanderbilt staff, uh, or if it's going to be more of a team effort, which is fine. Um, but weekends like this sometimes can happen when you're not getting that type of, uh, to use an old school word, boffo performance from one guy. So it uh, it does not ease up here for Vanderbilt. They now this weekend go to Auburn, which suddenly has a lot more intrigue than it did a week or two ago. Auburn is coming off of back-to-back road series wins uh, at AM and at LSU. And uh, Auburn has played really well this season. And now Vanderbilt has to go down to the Plains. Um, we'll, we'll see uh, where Vanderbilt goes from here. It's, got to break out of this funk sooner than later uh i think it will uh but this weekend is going to be a tricky one for it and we'll get into that more uh on thursday's 
uh, podcast as we come to, at you twice a week here on the Baseball America College podcast, Mondays and Thursdays. Monday, wrapping up the weekend. That's what we're doing right now. And Thursday, previewing the weekend to come. And I know that we'll dive into uh, Vanderbilt's trip to Auburn then. A lot more to get to on today's uh, recap show here. Uh, there was there's plenty uh, of action around the country, and we're going to head out west here to talk about some of the shakeup in the Pac-12. But first, check this out. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. All right, Joe, I mentioned here that the, the Pac-12 got, the, the race got, shakeup may be a little strong, a little more clarity in, in the race. That That's certain, certainly true. Uh, but let's start with, uh, w- with what happened in Corvallis. Stanford and Oregon State met this weekend. Those were the top two teams in, you know, the preseason coaches poll for the Pac-12. They were the top two teams uh, in the Baseball America projections. Um probably other places as well. But in both cases, Stanford was picked to be the favorite and Oregon State was picked number two. Uh, it had not started out the season that way. Oregon State was uh, racing off uh, out of the gates. Stanford a bit up and down and lost its first two Pac-12 series before uh, last weekend sweeping Washington State. So that was kind of the backdrop coming into this weekend was Stanford really needed, and it's hard to say this at the start of April, but Stanford really needed something this weekend if they were going to stay in the Pac-12 race and Stanford got it. Stanford went out and they won on Friday night, one to nothing. They, uh, they lost uh, the Saturday game, setting up a, uh, a, a rubber game on Sunday and Stanford fell behind five to nothing in the early innings, but they come back for an eight, five win. That's a serious win for the Cardinal 
uh, really, really big one uh, for Stanford. Quinn Matthews uh, was kind of the surprise hero out of the bullpen. Not that he would, not that Quinn Matthews would be the surprise hero, but in the role that he pitched, uh, they, they used him out of the bullpen to close out Saturday's extra inning game, which was a fantastic pitcher's duel. And then he again came out of the bullpen on Sunday, this time for seven innings. Uh, again, he's their typical Saturday starter. Uh, so big, uh, big weekend for the Cardinal, big weekend for Quinn Matthews and uh, really puts the Cardinal or, or keeps the Cardinal uh, in the thick of things there in the Pac-12. Yeah, you mentioned a series that that Stanford really needed. Like all of we talked about on the preview podcast, all of the big picture goals they have are, are in are in view now, especially now that the the, the Pac-12 race is condensed a little bit. And you know, they're they're still three games out, but this certainly keeps them keeps them a pace, right? If they'd have lost this series, it just would have been probably too much of an uphill climb to get back uh, anywhere close to that. So uh they absolutely needed it. It was the, the usage of, of Quinn Matthews was <laughs> was kind of interesting, you know. It was it helped that he only threw nine pitches on Friday. So, you know, had he, had he thrown 17, 20, like I'm sure they still would have gone back to him on Sunday, but it would have been a lot harder for him to do what he did. So, um, uh, you know, I, I will reserve judgment. I'm sure some people out there will, will pass judgments on using him twice in a weekend. I am not enough of an arm care expert to tell you one way or the other on that. Um, I will just say that for a early April series, it was a bit jarring to see Stanford, go to that kind of move in this spot. Although it does stand to highlight how important they felt this series was. It's not just guys, you know, gas bags like us sitting here talking on a podcast about how important it was. They showed us it was by the way they used Quinn Matthews. And I will also use that as a jumping off point to say that I think in this series you saw, even though Stanford pitched quite well this weekend and really Oregon state largely did too. Sunday things got away from them, but that's what I was about to say is that, you saw the pitching vulnerabilities of both these teams in the series. You saw it was Stanford through the way they felt like they had no better option than Quinn Matthews to close out a Friday game. And then also no better option, even with a three run lead on Sunday, you know, they have a three run lead in the eighth and ninth and, and they felt like continuing to throw Quinn Matthews out there and get him up to 120 pitches was their best option there. Um, and then Oregon state. Meanwhile, we talked about, how injuries have affected them a little bit on the mound and how the, 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 the pitching staff has lagged behind their offense in terms of being what kept them up to being the number two team in the country coming into the weekend. But we saw it on Sunday where they just, they get out to a quick lead. I think it was five to nothing. Yeah. Five to nothing after three innings. And they just couldn't keep Stanford off the board. Um, you know, they, they used five different guys, you know, varying levels of success out there, but the moral of the story is um, Stanford just kind of kept the pressure on and, and completed the comeback. So um while it does end up being a good pitching weekend for Stanford, um, it does go to show the the areas in which both of these teams felt felt a little bit vulnerable with, with Stanford just getting a, you know, a little bit of a superhuman performance from Quinn Matthews being the difference here, really. Yeah, Stanford ultimately holds Oregon State to eight runs on the weekend. Um, they become the first team to shut out Oregon State this year. And I think all of that's significant. What you're saying is correct. Um, clearly Stanford is a little like maybe one, maybe two pitcher short. I don't know. They're, they're a little shorter on the mound than they would like to be. That that's certainly true. That's not surprising. I'm not going to read too terribly much into this. Um, you know, Matthews being important is what it's 
you know, that, that, that's, that's no surprise. Uh, Drew Dowd will have better days than he had on Sunday. I, I imagine what they went into that day hoping was that they could get, say, five from Dowd and then four from Matthews as opposed to two and seven. Uh, but, you know, it, it worked out for them. Um, the, 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 the bigger thing for me, well, not the bigger thing, but the, the thing for me about Oregon State's pitching staff is Cooper Jerpy was amazing on Friday night. He struck out 17 and eight scoreless, hold Stanford to two hits and a walk. Any other day, that's enough to win a game with Oregon State's offense, absolutely, but with most teams in the country. Uh, very hard luck loser. I mean, I, he didn't take the loss, but very hard luck performance in a losing effort, I, I guess. Uh, he, Cooper Jerpy is, is maybe the most important player at Oregon State right now. They would, I, I just feel like they would be so lost without him because they came into the season. Part of the reason why we were so high on Oregon State, and if you listen to us in the offseason, you heard me say a lot of really nice things about the Beavers coming into this year. But I was really excited about the idea of a rotation of Cooper Jerpy, Will Frisch, and Jake Vennings. And Will Frisch hasn't pitched this year because of injury. Jake Vennings hasn't pitched um, in like three or four weeks again because of injury. So what you have is Cooper Jerpy, who's pitching at an All-American level. He just struck out more batters in one game than anyone has in more than a year in college baseball. Uh, and and it, it, it's, it's remarkable what, what he's done, but it has a little bit served to cover up the fact that without Fennings and without Frisch, uh, the Beavers are a little light on the mound. And I think that's, that's what you've seen. Over the last few weeks, certainly, but but it, Stanford was able to lay it very clear uh, this weekend, and, and they become the first team this year to win a series against Oregon State as a result. Yeah, interestingly, moving forward for these teams, you know, Stanford is really in a, a pretty decent position. Where of all the the teams that I think you'd reasonably consider contenders in the Pac-12, the only team it has left on the schedule in front of it is UCLA. Um, so that's a tough series, but otherwise like Stanford really did itself a favor by getting back with this series win because the path is there for them, not just because of this series win, but because of, of what's ahead of them. Um, but the Oregon negative State, to that is that they are three games behind Arizona. And the reason they're three games behind Arizona is Arizona swept them. So sure, yeah, making, they have up that, yeah. making up three games and really four, because they won't have the tiebreaker. Uh, they're going to need a lot of help. So I don't know that they could get back into the, get back to the, the, the peak in the, in the Pac-12. I don't know that they can get past the Wildcats, uh, but they certainly can get back in the mix. And if they're, if help is to be given, uh, they can be in position to, to take advantage of it. Yeah. I mean, and with Oregon state, it's really kind of a game of, okay, let's, let's make sure we're in good position once, you know, we kind of get into May because their schedule is such that, you know, they also kind of run through some teams that we would expect them to handle USC, Washington, Utah coming up. And, but they have, their May has Oregon, Arizona, and UCLA lined up bang, bang, bang in the regular season. So, you know, when we talk about getting healthy and, and getting everybody back on the mound or what have you, whatever, whatever that looks like, um, being ready for that stretch seems particularly important for Oregon State as to make as much hay as you can now and get everyone he as healthy as they can be because you're certainly going to need them those last three weekends. Yeah, the Beavers need to use the, the next month uh, as a time to develop more depth on the mound, uh, whether that's in the rotation or the bullpen, whatever. That, that 
they have a chance over the next month, like you said, to make some hay. And they need to use that time to work through uh, the, at the the pitching staff, get them in position to, uh, you know, attack it in, in May and June. And, you know, like, like we've said, you don't need – there aren't that many teams out there with defined three-man rotations and all the rest of it, but you need to find your group of guys. And um, hopefully Oregon State will be able to do that over the next, next few weeks here. Let's uh, let's head down to to Los Angeles, where Oregon was taking on UCLA. Uh, it was a rough weekend for Oregon-based schools as the Ducks got swept in three one-run losses at UCLA. Uh, kind of the perfect Bruins uh, weekend, just uh, three three well-pitched games. And, uh, you know, this UCLA team is as good on the mound as anyone in the country. Uh, so, you know, if, if, you, if you're going to let them play games like that, you're playing right into their hands. And uh, the Bruins took full advantage this weekend. Yeah, three games that really couldn't have been much closer, right? Just not, not just from the standpoint of them being one-run games, but also from the standpoint of Friday, Oregon leaves the tying run on third base. Saturday, Oregon leaves the tying run on second base. And then on Sunday, you know, they got a guy on with one with a one out walk and was erased on a double play. So a little less so there, but like Oregon made runs in all three of those games in the ninth inning. And then even in Saturday's game scored a run in the ninth inning to get within a run and just couldn't quite uh, finish the job. And I think you can look at it a couple of ways. One, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, these are UCLA's, I mean, this is UCLA's jam, right? I mean, they, they want, Ling from their starting pitchers, you know, they want certainty in how many innings they're going to have to get from their bullpen. Um, John Savage really likes his roles. If he can indeed, stick indeed to, he if, does. If he can skip, stick to the script, if the Bruins can stick to the script, uh, good luck beating them. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, did not get that necessarily on Sunday with Thatcher Hurd, but in the first two games, certainly. But I say that to say the first two games went so according to script that they were really in position to be able to win a little bit of a rock fight on Sunday because they had, they hadn't had to, to run too many guys out there. So, um, yes, yeah, so that's your heard leaves Sunday's game, having gone just one out with an injury. It sounds like it's a back injury. Uh, seems to be the early indication. We'll, we'll have to see that's your heard has been, uh, absolutely electric as a freshman, just as good as, as chase Burns and Drew beam, I would say, uh, in terms of best freshman pitchers around the country. So hopefully he's able to bounce back uh, quickly here. Uh, but if there's any team that's built to deal with an extended absence from one of its starters, it would, it would probably be UCLA. When it, uh, when it comes to back injuries, I, I hear you, Thatcher. I hear you, man. Like I wake <laughs> up every morning and it's like, is that a back injury? And I'm like, no, nope, it's just, you know, age being undefeated and, and Joe getting, you know, into his mid thirties as opposed to his early thirties or even his twenties and, you know, not probably doing as much like stretching as I should be doing and, and all of it. Um, so I, I hear you on the, I hear you on the back injuries that you're so I certainly hope for a quick, <laughs> quick recovery there. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the, it's funny. We've talked about the ups and downs of UCLA and I think that applies. Like, I don't think we're wrong about that. And yet we look up and, you know, they're six and three in the Pac-12 and, you know, 19 and eight overall record. And they, they, the ups have certainly been more up and the downs have been down. And really, Here's the question I have. that's what you're looking for. What if the downs are done? You know, I, I'm not saying they don't lose a series again, but what if, uh, you know, so there definitely were ups and downs. They started maybe a little slower than they would have liked. Then they went two and one. 
in the Shriners College Classic, followed that up by losing a series to USC for the first time in like six years, then really had to fight Harvard for a series win. Since then, though, they went to Arizona and won a series and they just swept Oregon. I don't know how much more you can ask for for UCLA uh, than five wins, two of them coming in Tucson and then sweeping Oregon. Uh, What if what if they found something here? I think that's certainly on the table, you know, where they're vulnerable, of course, is going to be the offense. Like what you can certainly concoct a scenario, right? Like, okay, what if Hurd's injury does linger a little bit as jokes aside, back injuries can, because, you know, you use your back to, for a lot of things, including walking and sitting, you know? So what if, you know, that lingers a little bit. Okay. So maybe you, you push like a Kelly Austin back into the rotation who has been mostly pretty good. Um, but obviously seeded that to, to Thatcher Hurd at some point in the rotation. So, you know, what if um, that lingers, the pitching isn't quite as good. I mean, the offense just really has had its moments. I was there for, I haven't looked game by game, but what I presume is probably still their best offensive performance. Absolutely their best. Yeah. (laughs) As, as As a team, they are, they are not hitting particularly well, but the good news on that front is, okay, so Thatcher Hurd is injured and we'll see how long he's out, but they just got, Jared Karos back this week. He had been out since opening weekend. And look, Karos isn't like he's not the offensive savior. Uh, he hit like 250 as a freshman last year, but you get a regular back in your lineup that you've been missing for pretty much the entire season. Uh, that is a significant boost. For sure. Yeah. It's, but it's just um, that's going to be the question with them is, you know, the, there are going, they're going to have to, I guess I'll just bottom line it this way. Like, this weekend is the blueprint. They're going to have to win games like this because of their chasing runs is never going to be something this team is, is going to be particularly good at. I don't think. I think that is absolutely fair. Uh, all right. So I mentioned Arizona swept. Uh, I, I think I mentioned that Arizona swept Washington this weekend. They're in first place in the pack 12. You've got a chasing pack behind them. We'll, we'll see how it all shakes out, but uh, you are starting to see the cream rise uh, there in the Pac-12, and uh, we will we'll certainly be moderating that uh, as as we continue through the season. Let's uh, let's flip back across uh, the country and let's go to Tallahassee, Joe. Notre Dame this weekend swept Florida State in Tallahassee. Massive massive result for the Fighting Irish. They came into the weekend really fighting it. They lost four straight ACC games. Uh, the sweep at Louisville the week that they were ranked number one in the country. And then last weekend's weird uh, quote, quote series uh, against Virginia tech that was shortened to one game by poor weather and Notre Dame blew that game. They had a lead uh, late and Virginia tech came back to win. Uh, So they lost four straight ACC games really needed something this weekend in Tallahassee and they got it in a, in a huge, huge way. They went two to nothing in 12 innings on Friday night. Uh, maybe the best pitching duel of the weekend month year uh, as John Michael Bertrand and Parker Messick went at it, ultimately decided by the bullpens. However, as Notre Dame hits a two run Homer in the 12th inning to win. Uh, and then they come back with a five, four win on Saturday. That one was, was really tight. They, they had to come back, score three runs in the final couple innings. And then they close out the sweep uh, with a nine to seven win. On Sunday, that game was much more back and forth, uh, but Notre Dame again comes away with the win and uh, a massive, massive sweep for, for the Irish. 
In a lot of ways, this felt like a return to form for Notre Dame, right? It felt a little like the formula that we saw from them so often last year. And I would argue that we saw some things from them that show that this is indeed a little bit of an upgraded model, no matter what the record shows you, a little bit of an upgraded model from what Notre Dame was working with last year, right? So last year, obviously, Bertrand pitched on Saturdays. Uh, Link Jarrett talked to us about that, like the theory behind that on the podcast this offseason. But this year it's on Fridays. But the, the, the point remains, you get you get depth from him, and he pitched really, really well. They weren't afraid in the other two games, though, much like last year. They weren't afraid to go to the bullpens relatively early. Um, they got clutch hitting. You know, they obviously got big hits in the, the both of the first two games and the, I guess the third game, too, even though they weren't, you know, last inning of the game type clutch hits. And they were really hard nosed, like look no further than in the second game of the series where they take the lead on basically a two RBI infield single because Brooks Coetzee, who's on second base on a on a two big two hopper up the middle, you know, ball gets fielded. I don't know, eight, 10 feet beyond the, the second base bag. Um, and he just never stopped running. And, you know, the throw home wasn't good for Florida State. So who knows if that throw is online. But the point being, they score that second run. And that's very much just a hard-nosed play that we saw from Notre Dame all last season. Why I say they're a little bit of an updated model, though, is because I think you saw the pitching depth this weekend where we didn't really see them get pushed like this until the postseason on their pitching staff at all last year. And so, yes, they they weren't afraid to go to their bullpen, but a lot of times they were going to their bullpen from a position of strength. They were not necessarily going to the bullpen the last two games of the series in a position of strength, but they weren't afraid to do it. And there was a lot more different arms this year than we saw last year getting the job done this weekend. So it was a return to form, but I, I do think there are reasons to, to be optimistic that this is a team that, yes, they want to win a specific way, but maybe doesn't have to win exactly the same way as they did last year. Yeah, I, I think this weekend they showed that you know the the script is is not as narrow as maybe it had suddenly appeared to be. Um, this is a team that is really good offensively, is really good on the mound. They had two, one really bad weekend and one really weird game against Virginia Tech, ultimately. And uh, if anyone thought that that meant Notre Dame was dead or that Notre Dame had been fraudulent or whatever, like let this weekend show you that uh, it, it's it's not. <laughs> Notre Dame is still uh, very much in the mix, very much to, to contend with. Uh, they're top five in the RPI all of a sudden. Um, that's going to slip a little bit here because they part of the reason they're top five in the RPI is they've played three home games, three home games to this point. Uh, but they're, they're, my point is everything is still very much on the table uh, for Notre Dame. We'll see whether they repeating as ACC uh, champions is, was always going to be difficult, still will be difficult, but uh, even that is uh, is right back there with this uh, with this sweep. The other thing about Notre Dame is, uh, having played all those road games, uh, they're going to get a lot of home cooking over the next month. So they uh, they should be able to make some hay, uh, and we'll see uh, we'll we'll see how that goes the rest of April. On the flip side, Joe, Florida State swept at home, first series loss of the year. Uh, if any, if if we're talking about Notre Dame kind of showing that it can win multiple ways uh, this weekend, if anything, to me kind of said that, uh, no, the script is as narrow as you might believe it to be in Tallahassee, that if they're starting pitching and like, look, their rotation is as good as anyone's in the country outside of Tennessee and maybe UCLA, but uh, 
if those guys aren't on, Florida State is going to struggle. Yeah, I can kind of, um, and and, I, and I'm not, let me be very clear about this up front. I'm not positioning the idea that if you get really good starting pitching early in the year, it's a bad thing. However, I think it can sometimes um, lull you into a sense of securities, maybe not quite right. But look, I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is that Florida State really hasn't necessarily had a chance to throw a lot of bullpen guys. You know, they don't, I feel like on some level, they don't even necessarily know fully what their depth situation is on the mound. I mean, in relief of Ross Dunn, they threw a couple of guys who haven't thrown a ton this year. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like it's a, like a, a fairly narrow script for them, at least at this point. And we saw it this weekend where, you know, Hubbard and Dunn just weren't as good as, as they've, they've been, you know, uh, Hubbard in particular got run early Dunn pitched in the sixth inning. And it felt like maybe it was a situation where, you know, just got him out there a couple of batters too late. Right. Um, maybe it's a different ball game if they, if they do, but um, yeah, I mean, it, kind of a, a fascinating I mean, at, at little that thing point, that, you know, the bullpen had covered something like seven innings already in, in the weekend. And so you're trying to get a little more depth there because you're trying not to go to those guys that you're, you're talking about that they had to go to, but because they played extra innings on Friday and because uh, Hilbert didn't go very deep on Saturday, the, the bullpen had already had to cover maybe more than they were comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, I think look no further than like the numbers for the starters are, are still very good. Right. So from Messick to Hubbard to Dunn, you're looking at ERAs at 235, 243, and 338. And most of that damage for Dunn has just come in the last two weeks. Um, the team ERA, however, is 372. So, like, that tells you where the soft spots are. Um, that's no surprise, given how good that starting rotation is. But, like, there it is, right there, right? And when we know their offense, I think we talked about last week, their offense in spots has been better than we expected. They've had some new faces step up. But that that is not the same thing as this being – a particularly dynamic offense or one of the more dangerous offenses around. So they can score some runs. Um, but in a weekend like this, where they really needed the offense to score some runs and keep up outside of, I guess, on Sunday, um, you know, where they were trading blows. I mean, both those first two games are right there for the taking and the offense just couldn't, couldn't take them. And shout out Kurt Weiler, the Tallahassee Democrat. I was reading a piece he did at the end of the weekend where he laid out the numbers and I should have jotted them down and I did not, but just, you know, just really, really bad hitting numbers wise with runners on base and runners in scoring position. And I never know what to do with those stats because it's just like, what is the answer to that? Well, hit better in those situations. Well, okay. You know, great, like <laughs> helpful. Um, so I don't, you know, I never know what to do with those kind of stats, but it is the fact that they got some guys on base. They just couldn't really cash them in. And it feels like that's a little bit of the story of, of this offense. Yeah, really. Uh, we, we talked about Cooper Jerpy in a losing effort, Parker Messick as well in a losing effort on Friday night uh, have to have to feel for him. He goes eight and struck out. I think it was 12 and didn't walk anyone held Notre Dame to like one hit. I don't have the numbers perfectly in front of me, but it, it was, uh, it was a, it was an outstanding uh, start for, for Messick and uh, they were, they were not able to capitalize. And that really, really hurt Florida state the rest of the weekend. You feel like, cause even if, the rest of the weekend unfolds the way it did. If you had at least gotten uh, that, that Messick start, if you'd turned that into a win, uh, you're probably feeling so much differently today. Uh, all, as it was, it was a brutal 0-4 week because they lost to Florida on Tuesday in Jacksonville as well. So uh, Florida State now having to, uh, having to, to, to fight back uh, out of, out of uh, you know, a really, really disappointing week um, for them there in, uh, in Tallahassee. Uh, all right, Joe, I, I mentioned there's a lot of rivalry action around the country. Um, 
You had Georgia sweeping Florida in Athens. They've now won six straight against the Gators in Athens as they also swept them in 2019. And Georgia, don't look now, they're third in RPI at 22 and six. Uh, they're back into the top 25. Maybe we're a little hasty in dropping them. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, but they 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 recovered very well from a series loss last weekend at Kentucky. Uh, Southern Miss wins uh, a series against Louisiana Tech, kind of taking control in Conference USA. That's maybe not a rivalry on the level of some of the other ones we've talked about, but uh, that one's certainly a, you know developed organically on the diamond over the last uh, several years there. Uh, and this weekend, Southern Miss with the, the big series win in Hattiesburg. Texas wins the Red River rivalry in Arlington uh, with a wild Sunday uh, rubber game. They scored 11 unanswered in the final three innings uh, to, to beat Oklahoma in that series. And Central Florida, uh, UCF swept South Florida. They threw a pair of one-hit shutouts to start that series. Uh, and then won eight to four in the finale. Uh, that was opening weekend of uh, of American athletic play uh, and UCF bouncing back after a really rough month to uh, to take it to their rivals. I'm sure I'm forgetting a rivalry series here here or there around the country. But uh, Joe, of those uh, of those uh, rival rivalry showdowns, uh, what, what stood out for you? Well, I mean, obviously Georgia doing what it did stands out. Just quickly on that, I'll say that. Um, they are one of those teams that, you know, we, we bounced them relatively quickly. Just part of that's pole mechanics that like stuff like that happens, but they are another team. We talked a little bit about UCLA where we like looked up when we were doing top 25 discussions last night and we're like, Oh, like Georgia's 22 and six overall and like six and three, like not only is this team in the rankings, but like, you know, they're going to come in pretty good in the rankings. And this team is probably like all told it's, it's, it's body of work is, is better than we've probably given giving it, a little bit credit for and the- I, I no, I will say this. If they had lost this weekend, how different is Georgia from Vanderbilt really? Because they lost series at Kentucky and to Georgia Tech. Their best series win was what Mississippi State at home, uh, which is fine. Uh, I'm not here to 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 hate on that, but uh it, if they had lost this weekend, we would be looking at them in a completely different light. Instead, they go out and get a really loud sweep. Uh so huge kudos to Georgia for getting it done. But I, I, I do feel like, you know, if they, if they lose this weekend, that's three series losses and you're just looking at them completely differently. Yeah. Sweeps in the sec huge too. When you talk about postseason resume stuff, because sweeps just against talented teams in the sec, I don't I'm not even going to say good teams, just talented teams just don't happen, you know? Um, so that that's incredibly valuable as Georgia looks to, to build that resume. Speaking of, of, Mississippi State, and it's a jumping off point actually for for something else here, but not a, necessarily a rivalry series. But uh, you say that, but <laughs> I did find it. Uh, well, I mean, on the diamond, certainly. I mean, we talk about the class of the sport recently. Um, but Arkansas is a team that's like quietly just gone about its business. Um, we had some questions about that team early, and rightfully so. I'm not backing off of that. Like, um, but has now you know seven and two in the SEC and twenty one and five overall. And the larger point I want to make here. Uh, because some of the questions do remain right. It, like the offense has been better and the weather is probably warming up. Let's not forget that like, you know, Fayetteville is not a tropical paradise early in the season, but they do play a lot of home games. So maybe there's a little something to that. Um, they have been a little bit better. What's interesting to me about them though, is while none of the guys are like, I don't know, peak Jack lighter, 
they had, don't look now, but they have kind of like figured out their rotation to a certain degree. Like Noland has been like leaps and bounds better than anybody reasonably could have expected. The hype about him from the fall seems to have been right on the money. Like he seems like a different guy or like a return to the guy that yeah, we saw in flashes early in his year, career. Basically. Yeah. Right. Freshman Hagen Smith has been totally solid. Um, and then Jackson Wiggins, the biggest wild card, has also been pretty solid. Um, you know, and then in the bullpen, they've, you know, Brady Tiger, the freshman, has really come on and been a, a real spark plug for them back there early on, which has added some depth to the bullpen. Like, um, I think it's a, again, like I'm always a little bit dubious of how do these, these types of rotations that have three solid guys rather than like one real dude at the front of the rotation. I'm always a little bit dubious of how that stacks up once you get into the postseason when, now Connor Nolan, for example, is going to be facing off against, you know, another good team's best guy, whether it's the SEC tournament or a regional or a super or Omaha, that's probably a different question. But for right now, like, I really do find it fascinating that this pitching staff that we obviously had lots of questions about coming into the season has, has kind of figured it out a little bit. Yeah. I, I can't say I'm stunned by the fact that they figured it out, but the, uh, it is, it is a huge development that they have. I mean, the, the pieces were there. We just had a lot of questions about whether it would all come together. Still felt pretty good about them. We ranked them eighth coming into the year. Uh, but they uh, they certainly have have gone out and answered a lot of those questions. Uh, in Arlington, the, that Texas uh, series win was really significant. Texas obviously has fought it more than they, the early part of the season. It came very easy for Texas. It's not coming easy right now, uh, but they do get the series win ultimately. Uh, much like Florida State, if they had lost this series, it would have been made for a really tough week. They lost to AM on Tuesday in Austin. Then they're playing their other rival, Oklahoma, um, in, in Globe Life Field in Arlington. And having split the first two games, you know, Pete Hansen was really good on Friday. Texas got to Jake Bennett in a way that no one has yet this season. Uh, then they lose the Saturday game, and they get down 7-1 to one in the 6th on uh on sunday and look oklahoma's bullpen clearly uh has some issues we've seen that at various times this year but still for for texas to to come out execute that comeback uh that was texas's biggest comeback and like i much much like you with kurt weiler i read danny davis's story and i can't remember the exact date of this comeback but it had been quite some time since they had a comeback like that uh, so for them to go out and do that on the big stage, I, I think was uh, was really big for the Horns, and you know, especially coming off of a series loss against Texas Tech to open Big Twelve play, they needed they needed this, uh, and now they go into a series this weekend against TCU in a much better place. Another big series ahead. TCU, kind of a mystery team, lost a series to West Virginia. West Virginia is kind of an interesting team, um, but yeah, TCU a team that, you know, you and I talked offline about not being quite sure what to, to make of them. And I guess maybe we'll, we'll get some answers or maybe not this weekend. Who knows? Um, a couple of things I will throw onto the pile on top of the pile that, that you threw out there. Um, <laughs> and, and some of these, maybe you may, I was trying to keep up as you were throwing them out there, but maybe I've, I, I am going to double up here a couple of times, but Illinois swept Purdue in big 10 action. Um, I'm not going in to the say big that, 10. That might be a rivalry. So you know, like they, they probably play for a football trophy, <laughs> uh, yeah, much like everyone in the Big Ten. Um, but Illinois sweeps Purdue. And, you know, I don't want to just claim the Purdue thing over because like we talked about, the team clearly is better. But like the idea that Purdue was like suddenly the class of the Big Ten, I think 
I don't even know if anybody was making that straw man argument maybe, but clearly, you know, something, uh, you know, this team is not just going to run through the big 10 and, and be the class league. Um, I'm ready to declare it over from a like regional perspective. Their RPI is 121. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think yeah. that's fair. Yeah. I mean, could this team finish fourth in the big 10 or fifth, you know, like I think Plausible. that's probably doable. Yeah. Um, so there's that, uh, Georgia state swept South Alabama. They're now second in the Sun Belt. I'm just going to shrug my shoulders at that. Like the Sun Belt is interesting. I think we will talk a decent amount about that league as the postseason nears because I've written about it. We've talked about it briefly before, but it is an interesting league to watch. But Georgia, did I say Georgia Southern? I meant I may have said Georgia Southern, but I meant Georgia, no, you State. Said Georgia State. Okay, yeah. So Georgia State is the one though in that mix that's kind of surprising a little bit. Um, you know, last year they they made some headlines because of their like just crazy non-conference schedule at the beginning of the year and they got beat up and they didn't have a good year. Um, but, uh, I don't know this year, they seem quite a bit better. So that's interesting. Uh, we, we they've certainly been, uh, surging over the last few weeks, I would say. Uh, indeed. Yes. Uh, we previewed this series, uh, in the preview podcast, but Indiana state won that series against Illinois state. Although I guess maybe because Indiana state was the home team and won the series, it actually hurt the RPI situation generally for the Valley. Both of those teams are outside the top 80 now. Um, still a lot of baseball to go, but also kind of running out of time for that league to like fundamentally change the RPI picture there. So something to um, something to watch. Uh, UNLV is 11 and one in the Mountain West. So there's that um, interesting little tidbit there. I mean, that's already like three or four games ahead of second place Nevada, um, but they play a lot of conference games in the Mountain West. So there's there is time for that to be to be made up. So there's a, a few other little items there to throw on top of uh, what you had already mentioned. Uh, so I, I do want to circle back to the MVC because uh, Dallas Baptist lost to Wofford and uh, we're, we're definitely going to talk about that. But first, I have to let you know that uh, Purdue and Illinois football do play for a trophy. Are you ready Ooh. for this? Yep. It's the Purdue Cannon. Oh, the okay. Cannon was con- I'm, I'm now reading from the American football database, whatever that is. Uh, the Cannon was conceived by Purdue students. Uh, years ago, but was first presented as a trophy uh, in 1943. It started in 1905 when a group of Purdue students took the weapon to Champaign in anticipation of firing it to celebrate a boiler victory. Mm. Uh, Although Purdue did win the game, uh, Illinois had like found the cannon and took it away. So they they were unable to fire it. Uh, But that's how this whole thing started is that Purdue thought some Purdue students at the turn of the 20th century, thought taking a cannon uh, to Champagne was was a great idea. I mean, look, here's here's the yeah, here's the thing. <laughs> like we we talk about how like petty fans can be like on Twitter and stuff. Like I would argue read any rivalry games like page on Wikipedia and like there was just so much more like 75, 100 years ago. There was just so much more like mascot stealing and like raiding the opposing campus and all those kinds of things. There was so much more of that back then. And I would argue that those students and fans are like every bit as petty as the ones we see today. Um, You know, they just, they didn't have social media to pop off on. They had to like, they had to take a cannon to the rival (laughs) campus or like steal the live bulldog mascot um, to, to make their point. Um, Cause I feel like every rivalry has like some sort of story like that involved. Also, uh, in football, that series is basically dead even. I think Illinois has a one-game advantage in the, like, 100 years they've been playing this thing. Anyway, um, that's the Big Ten for you. Uh, Hmm. 
while we're before we detour back to because I do want to touch on the MVC, uh, the Big Ten, you mentioned Illinois and Purdue. We did not touch on Iowa beating Michigan, and that one is going to have big implications on the Big Ten standings at the end of the year. I think uh, Michigan was at home. Uh, they, uh, they they split the first two games. Michigan uh, beat Adam Mazur on Saturday. They, they lost the Friday game. Uh, and Iowa comes back on Sunday and gets the series win. We've talked a fair amount about Iowa on the podcast, not so much about Michigan. Not going to really dive deep into it here, but I will say that's a big one for Iowa. I had not previously thought that Iowa was the, you know, if Maryland's the best team in the Big Ten, and that's what the rankings reflect, that's what everything has said so far this season. I had previously thought Michigan was the second best team. But if Iowa just went into Ann Arbor, and won the series, I think we now have to, you know, reset that and, and maybe say that Iowa is in fact the second best team in the Big Ten. Uh, and you know, what what does that mean moving forward? I don't know. Um, neither of these teams has fantastic RPIs. Plenty of time to, you know, they're, they're not outside at large range or anything like that. But uh, it, it's not like we're talking about hosting teams or anything like that. But in terms of the Big Ten race, who is going to challenge Maryland right now? I think you have to say it's Iowa. Yeah, I, th- I think that's I think that's right. It's such a I don't know, man. It's like such a weird year with the Big Ten. And I don't know if it's a little bit of like I don't know. Like I just I'm going to say I don't know. I was going to say maybe it's like a little bit of hangover from how weird last year was with the conference only, and it just feels like there's not a lot of juice in the Big Ten this year. Um, I, you know, who, it, maybe it's the lack of like Maryland has been has had a really nice season. And maybe it's the fact that Maryland is not thought of as like, you know, kind of a more traditional big 10 team. I don't know, but it just no, feels I, like, I, just... I will say that some of it is just that when you say there's a lack of juice, I kind of thought you meant star power and well, that, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, it, it's, it's a conference that was lacking that coming into the year and it hasn't corrected itself really. Uh, Clark Elliott is having a, a good season at Michigan and uh, the Maryland rotation has, has been great, but you know, they, it's not like anyone has popped up as a, you know, first round draft pick in the league. They aren't having any freshmen really have like a, a standout season. Like we're seeing, you know, a Thatcher Hurd or a Drew Beam have, um, you know, let alone someone like Chase Burns, but just a, a little less expected guy, like a Drew Beam, like that hasn't happened to this point in the big 10. So I, th- I think it's just a little bit lacking on, uh, on the spotlight from that standpoint. I mean, if, if like, if Rutgers wants to like do like for real, do this and like try to be a postseason team, like I'm, that would add some juice to it for me anyway. Like, you know, let's, let's take advantage of the fact that, you know, Indiana clearly is, is not as good this year. And, you know, so it, it you know, let, let's have someone else break through into the, into the, the upper echelon and, and challenge for, for the postseason. So I'm, I'm game for Rutgers sitting atop the league right now at, at five and one along with Illinois. Rutgers 21 and six. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's actually touch on the Missouri Valley rather than me constantly saying we're going to do it. So uh, you mentioned Indiana State and Illinois State, and we talked about that, the importance of that series uh, on the preview pod. But to me, uh, maybe the biggest result from the weekend in the Valley was that Wofford went to Dallas and beat DBU in a series. They won the first two games. Uh, DBU didn't look particularly good in either of those games. Uh, Wofford just... They just went out and they beat DBU's best two starters. Um, DBU, to its credit, came back, won the the finale. DBU still somehow 
is number two in the RPI, but Tennessee did finally pass. Knew that was going to happen eventually. It happened on Saturday. Um, everything that we've previously said about DBU remains true. Like they're still the best team in the Valley. They're still in a position to host and everything, but I don't know, Joe, like what are you taking from this weekend uh, from a DBU perspective? We can talk about what it means for Wofford in a second, but what, what was this? Uh, it's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think it does show there, there'd been some talk that, you know, this DBU pitching staff is one of the better ones it's had in a while, because for those who have really been paying attention to it, I mean, there was, if you go back to 2014, 15, when, when DBU really truly first announced itself as a upper level mid-major, a team that could, you know, be that next, I don't know, Cinderella, if you will, to get to Omaha. Like it was an offensive club at times. Yes. But I think more notable was just that they had arms. Like they had a ton of big arms and their depth in that regard, their quality and their depth in that regard were on par with a lot of the major conference programs. And that's kind of what set them apart within the mid major ranks. That has been less true recently. They've become a more offensive program, which is, I think serves them well in their conference. And the pitching has been good, not great in a lot of cases. And the depth certainly hasn't been there. There was talk this year that like this was kind of a return to form for that. And I do think we saw this weekend against a Wofford club that should be said, like has is good this year and has been good for a while. Um, I think it showed that maybe we were a little over our skis. I say we, I guess maybe I bought into that a little bit and maybe a little over our skis with that assessment, just because this weekend, Jacob Netter, who'd been really, really good, wasn't. Luke Eldred, who'd been pretty doggone good, wasn't. And the freshman Ryan Johnson struggled as well. And he's a freshman. So, you know, those things are going to kind of happen. But I, I think they showed they're a little more vulnerable on the mound than maybe we were giving them credit for. And the offense still hasn't totally come around. And I'm still betting on it doing so, but I would not have expected them to be hitting under 270 as a team. And, and frankly, having, quote, just 40 home or 39 home runs, um, is not what I expected either. They've played a pretty tough schedule, although it's not like a SEC murderer's row. Um, they it's have played a good t- mid-major you can think of. Correct. Like it is a, it is <laughs> almost all like of them at home. A chef's kiss of like a perfect level of quality, like every weekend, right? Like, and this is like if you're going to be a critic of RPI, and Lord knows, like there are good reasons for that. Like, this is one of them where. You know, they play SEMO early in the season. They lose that series. They play San Diego early in the season. They win that series. And, you know, Southern Miss, they play them. And those teams, for the most part, are good independent of that. But they're all kind of playing off each other in RPI. So you have like this little RPI cluster of teams with, you know, San Diego and, and, and SEMO and, and DBU that are all kind of, because they're all high in RPI and they all played each other, it kind of fortifies their position there. Um, and so, if you schedule the right teams, like you can do this. And it just feels like this is a year when they, they did it just right. I, as far as what they're like this for better or worse. And I guess this could be another criticism of the way the system is set up is that for better or worse, like, I don't think this really changed much about their actual outlook. Right. I mean, if they win the Valley and go 16 and five in the Valley and their RPI is four, like, you know, they're going to host. And I think that's, they're probably not gonna be a top eight. I don't think you could be a top eight. Um, but I mean, if they went 21 and 0 in the Valley, like maybe we're talking, but 
I, I mean, I think they could be plausibly because while they haven't played these teams on the weekend, they have nothing but Big 12 midweek games, basically. Uh, so if they make hay in those, I, it's not, it would be hard. I think there would be a strong pushback to not have them in the top eight, but uh, the, I don't want to close the door on it at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think, so I think largely all of the things we thought about them are true, right? Like on, on the field, like I said, I think it shows that the offense clearly is still working some things out. They're a little more vulnerable on the mound than it looked like a week ago in terms of the numbers though. I still think this is a, a down year in the Valley beyond DBU. Um, so I do think they are going to be able to run up a pretty good record in the Valley. And so if the RPI sticks and I think it will, and they win the Valley and put up that kind of record, I think this is a team that hosts. So you'd rather win the series than lose it, but I don't think it really materially changed much about their outlook. Millie also says that, uh, DBU did not materially change its outlook. I think that's, yeah, she had, she had some, those were some hot takes coming from the other (laughs) side for sure. Uh, so let's talk about Wofford. Let's talk about the dogs here. Uh, the terriers, you mentioned they've been uh, very good for the last few years. They've actually won 36 games in the last three full uh, college baseball seasons, uh, which is, I mean, you can't get more consistent than that. Uh, they were 14 and three in 2020 on top of that. And uh, they're off to a really good start this year. Their RPI is good. Uh, they're like, what are they like 20 and nine now? It's a, uh, it's a, been a solid go. Um, and this is a team under that under Todd Interdonato uh, has been just a really good team in the SOCON and, you know, been one of the better mid-major teams. They play kind of a, I don't want to, it's, it's a little unique the way that they play. They, they really want to put pressure on you. They really want to steal bases. They actually didn't steal bases this weekend. They stole three bases as all. Uh, and this is a team that already has like 90 stolen bases uh, this season. So DBU did a good job of limiting the running game. It just wasn't enough. Um, Wofford is sitting, like I said, 29, 35 in the RPI. Uh, Mercer, they're the, the other team that looks to be contending for the SOCON title this year, 24 and five, 27 in RPI. That's it in terms of like high level RPI teams in, uh, in the SOCON, no one else is in the top 100. That means it's a really narrow path for either of those teams to be at large teams. But what Wofford did this while, while DBU did not materially change its resume this weekend, assuming that it, you know, it just still has to go out and do what it does in the Missouri Valley. And that'll determine what happens here. Wofford did add something marquee to its, its, uh, its resume. And it really needed that. If, if there is to be an at-large team, uh, you have to have something like this on the, on the resume. And on the last weekend uh, of non-conference play for the Terriers, they went out and got it. hundred percent. Yeah. It does set the SoCon up. The SoCon is one of those leagues I compared a little bit to the West coast conference where every year I look at it. I don't think I'm alone in this every year. I look at it and go, yeah, this is a league that I never want to say should, but feels like it should put two teams in a regionals. And then when, when we get down to it, it almost never does. And there are reasons for that, that are not, you know, we could really get into, but we don't have three or four hours, but this year I think it's actually set up to be that, that kind of league. Um, You know, I think it's a good news, a bit of good news for the league that Mercer 
without really all that challenging of a schedule in non-conference has, you know, still a top 30 RPI and they're piling up wins. And um, I think these two teams can really draft off of each other. Um, you know, it also helps that I think both are just good enough to kind of keep this up. They are not tricking the computers as, as you, as you might say here. So I think it's a great development for the SOCON because it's a league, like I said, that I think is, has enough quality to be a multi-bid league sometimes and doesn't tend to get the benefit of the doubt. And this year might be a little different. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have to see always a good league. Uh, we'll, we'll see how, uh, how these teams fare as, as SOCON play, uh, gets underway here. Uh, next week. All right, Joe, we hit on plenty. Uh, there's so much more that we didn't get to. Pitt won a series against uh, against Louisville. Uh, Virginia Tech won a series in Chapel Hill for the first time ever. Uh, the ACC continues to be topsy-turvy. Um, I don't know. There, there are a million other things that happened this weekend. It was a very busy weekend around the country. Uh, I would encourage you to check out everything over at baseballamerica.com. Uh, we didn't talk about Texas State at all, which is a mistake on, on our part. Joe went out and saw the Bobcats, uh, who won a, a series at App State. Uh, so if you want to want to check out uh, more, learn more about Texas State, which is one of the top mid majors uh, this season, Joe has uh, has some stuff for you to read over at baseballamerica.com. You can read off the bat uh, where I went. Uh, went deep on some of this stuff, went, just hit on a bunch of other things. Um, and of course the top 25 has uh, everything you would expect uh, in terms of, of rounding up the, the, the top 25 teams in the country and, and, and their week. Um, Joe does a great job with that every week. So all of that over at baseballamerica.com. I would encourage you to check it out. There'll be more throughout the week, including an updated projected field of 64. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And make sure you are subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you go to get your podcasts, you can find us. Hit the subscribe or follow button. And we pop in twice a week, again, on Mondays and Thursdays, recapping the week that was and previewing the weekend. So we'll be back here on Thursday with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Another big weekend in front of us. There's a top 10 series in Coral Gables as Virginia is headed to Miami. Uh, There's intrigue in the Big 12. There are, as always, big SEC series uh, stuff happening out on the West Coast as well. We're going to dive into all of that on Thursday. So until then, thank you all for listening. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.